Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Dr. Ed Madison, Associate Professor of Journalism at the University of Oregon. Dr. Madison has a 45-year career in the field and is here to talk about the Journalistic Learning Initiative. This is a very cool program on the West Coast that's intended to get students interested in learning through journalism at a young age. Dr. Madison is a co-founder. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. When I hear you say 45 years, it scares me, but people have to know that I started out when I was a tiny child. No, I was started out when I was 15 or 16 years old, actually, professionally, so... That's why so many years. But yes, glad to be here. All right. Since you brought it up, can you give us a capsule summary of your career and the path that has taken you to, oh, the, to this point? How long is this show? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think my story starts with my family, actually. So my dad was a trailblazing journalist. He was the first African-American to join the editorial staff of the Chicago Tribune in 1961. So he covered the civil rights movement, knew Dr. King and we covered the Kennedy-Nixon debates. Quite intimidating to follow in his footsteps and decide that I also wanted to pursue a career in journalism. We also share the same name, so that made it a little more difficult, too. And then my mom taught school. And when I was 16, the Watergate scandal was unfolding, and I, I just happened to luckily find an internship at the television station that was owned by the Washington Post at that time in Washington, D.C., They've changed ownership now, but that's where my career started. I had a big afro, and I was quite young and only had just learned to drive. But that was my humble beginnings. And then I did my undergraduate study at Emerson College in Boston, and then immediately moved out to Los Angeles, where I had the good fortune to be part of the team that launched CNN. So I was 22 and was recruited by CNN, and I was responsible for our nightly entertainment news program. And and then I, over the... 23 years I spent in Los Angeles, I did everything from be a producer director for Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous to freelance work for Entertainment Tonight. And I was the West Coast producer of the CBS Morning Program, one of the many failed attempts to compete with the Today Show and had my own production company that did a lot of um, behind the scenes marketing video work for uh, Paramount and Disney and record companies. And then I moved to Oregon in 2001, actually. So it's been a, been quite a while still. Not with the intention of going back into academia, but really for quality of life reasons. And started a, or actually moved my production company from California to here in Oregon. and was doing a lot of travel and tourism work. And then in 2008, I decided to go back to school. The economy took a downturn. And so I went and earned my PhD and then made an effort to stay and that was I was able to stay which for folks who know a little bit about academia typically don't get to stay at the same place where you got your PhD but anyway I had competitive offers from other schools and really wanted to stay and so I prevailed and then I just got tenure last year so that's the shortest version I think I've ever given of of my background <laughs> we're here to talk about the JLI which was founded do I say founded in 2011 or founded in 2015? Yeah, so we started in 2011 as an organization called Media Arts Institute. And then in 2015, we changed the name to Journalistic Learning Initiative. So because it 
better reflected the work that we were doing. Actually, the origins of JLI stem back to my uh, search for a dissertation project when I was in graduate school in around 2010. I had the good fortune to meet Esther Wojcicki, who up until recently ran the journalism program at Palo Alto High School. Esther is a force and a thought leader and an author and an incredible mom. She wrote a book about, it's called uh, How to Raise Successful Children, and it's something she knows something about. One of her daughters is the CEO of YouTube and the other is CEO of 23andMe, the DNA company. And she also, she has a third daughter who's an epidemiologist, world-class epidemiologist. So she knows what she's talking about. But anyway, Esther was running an amazing program there until she just retired in the last year. And I observed the program. And of course, Palo Alto High School is across the street from Stanford. And Google is down the freeway and Facebook's around the corner. And so I was really wondering with, with what I was witnessing was what I was witnessing more an affectation of privilege and affluence, or was there something that they were doing there that could inform education more broadly? And I did surveys and compared to other schools, and I spent many days there video recording teacher-student interactions. And it turns out, which is this is the basis of JLI, which I know is the focus of your of our interview, turns out something quite intuitive, you probably know just in the work that you do, that journalism allows students to pursue topics that are aligned with the things they're already interested in. So instead of feeling like they're being force-fed information and that may or may not be relevant to them someday, they actually get to pursue topics that they already feel they want to pursue. And that's not to suggest that we should only allow kids to pursue the things they to do, but for kids that sometimes get labeled as reluctant learners, it's a place to meet them where they are and start them on a journey towards learning to research and identify facts and think more critically and some of those things. So that's the essence of the origin of JLI. And since 2015, we've positively affected close to 5,000 students in uh, 20 plus middle and high schools in mostly in Oregon and in California. A quote from your website mission statement is that the journalistic learning initiative empowers students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and engage in self-directed learning through project-based storytelling. What does that look like in practical terms in a classroom? How it looks is shifting a little bit. So what we used to do when we were in our earlier days, six years ago or so, is that we would identify a really sharp journalism student, somebody who just graduated from college and who might be looking to build their portfolio. And so they really, they might be looking for some part-time work as part of a gap year. And so we would take that individual, we train them, and we'd put them in a classroom working for us 20 hours a week alongside of a teacher. And that did a number of things. First of all, Sometimes you'll go into a classroom and there's like a metal cart that sometimes call it the cow I think computers on wheels or what that's what that stands for. And it's in the corner and it's all locked up and nobody's using the tablets or whatever that's in there because either the teachers, particularly at the middle school level, don't feel confident uh, about managing kids not going to other inappropriate sites 
or IT hasn't linked it all up to the web or whatever else. And so these materials aren't necessarily being used, these resources, this technology. So we bring in a millennial, or I guess now it's a Gen Y or Z, I can't, what generation are we on, who is media, social media savvy, technology savvy, and working alongside of a teacher can support that teacher in having the students use Zoom to communicate and uh, reach out to experts and those kinds of things. That's kind of how our model was. Now what it looks like is we actually, and there's not, there's nothing, there's very little that we can say about COVID that's been good. But one thing it has done is it's um, allowed us to communicate or become accustomed to communicating via uh, Zoom and in the same way that we're talking right now. And we're now able to train teachers in places that we may never go. And so that's shifting how we deliver our work. Uh, and how we train teachers. So instead of sending somebody to sit in the classroom with them, we now can coach them from afar. There's a chart on your website that compares traditional learning and journalistic learning. What are the differences between the two that you want to highlight that would best explain the approach that your program takes? Yeah, I think that the first piece of it is something I spoke about earlier, which is relevance. So it's not about teaching students about something they may use one day. It's about inviting them to explore topics that they are relevant to their own lives. And it's not just personal hobbies and things like that. It can be social justice issues. It can be issues of equality and all kinds of concerns that young we know that young people have. So that's the first piece of it. The second piece of it is, on the other end of it, is the publishing component. So what we find is that when a student realizes that what that the assignment that they're doing is going to be read by their peers and their family and their community, and they bring a whole nother level of commitment to doing the work. It's just not something that the teacher's going to grade and go into a folder. And, and so we find that brings out the best in students. So those are the two key parts. There's some other elements to that as well, but those are the two key parts. You've brought this program into some less affluent uh, communities. What has the experience been in doing that? When we piloted our program in Junction City, Oregon in 2016, and this is a rural community, had been a timber community where subsidies for timber had gone away, challenged economically. I don't know exactly what I expected, but what I was surprised, surprisingly, and in a really great way, I found these kids were like spunky, like there was, they were resilient. They were, they were not by any means downtrodden or depressed, or that did not mean that they weren't experiencing challenges in their homes, economic challenges in their homes. And so I found that the other thing about rural communities and particularly middle schoolers is that there aren't as many opportunities for field trips because of the proximity where they are uh, located. And also the kids, you know, think of if you're 11 or 12 or 13 years old, you probably aren't talking to many adults other than your parents. And so they just loved the fact that they could pick a topic, find an expert and do a story about it. And, and so we continue to find that. You mentioned Spunky. I was watching one of the videos on your website and I had a particular appreciation for one that was done on 
questions and teaching students to ask deep questions and right. how the teacher <laughs> explained how a deep question gets an emotional response right. and uncovers the actual truth. Right. Uh, so I thought that was really cool. Do you have some favorites among the videos that are on your site in terms of what they have taught to people? Sure. And if anyone wants to go and who's listening and wants to go to journalisticlearning.com, there's a video tab there. And I particularly relate to Caden, who is a young biracial student from Junction City, who we met when he was 12 years old in the sixth grade. And now we revisit it with him two years later. And now we revisit him again two years later, just this past week or so, and talk with him. So he's in the 11th grade now. And just to see the growth and introspection, but also culturally in terms of just what it's like to be one of few who looks like you in, in that community. So he's terrific. Avery is another uh, student that we've been working with throughout, and she wants to be a writer. And who knows, these students could end up being in my classes at the university at some point. We don't know. That was not our <laughs> original intention, but they seem to really enjoy journalism. So those two, and then Jake is another one who in the sixth grade, his team took on the topic of homelessness. And Jake's perspective was that if you're homeless, it's your fault and you're probably trying to abuse the system. Or when I say your fault, it's not, it wasn't necessarily that harsh, but it was, if you'd been a more responsible person, if you'd studied in school, if you'd whatever, you wouldn't be in this situation. And what he learned what he and his team learned by talking to homeless people and talking to not so much homeless people, but a woman who runs a homeless shelter is that many of the people who are affected adversely by homelessness are his age and they're, they're minors. Their, their family may have had a catastrophic illness or there may have been some something that just caused them to lose their job. And to no fault of their own, they're on the streets. And it was a real eye-opening experience for him that he reflects on in one of the videos there. What are some of the challenges that you run into in trying to teach this to middle school students? I don't know that we have necessarily challenges in teaching it to middle school kids because they embrace it wholeheartedly. It may be the one point in the day where they get to really explore a topic that they are really interested in. They embrace it wholeheartedly. And I would say that the schools and teachers also embrace it. So there's not really much pushback from it at all. I would say that what we find is that sixth graders are actually almost probably the perfect sweet spot for starting this kind of work because there's still this sort of sense of innocence. By the time they're in you know, eighth grade, the Collars turn up a little bit, a little moose in the hair, you know, makeup. <laughs> uh, <laughs> kids <laughs> start to develop a little bit more cynicism. And I understand why that's so. I think that kids begin to realize very early that maybe their pal is being pulled out for another reading group, or there's a sense that they're not getting the same test scores as others, and they start to form and and really solidify beliefs about themselves like I can't do or I'm not good at math or things like that and collect evidence that supports it and sometimes it just means that some students need a little more time to develop certain skills than others and it's not as rigid you know there's a lot of talk about growth mindset it's a a, a term and a theory actually that that has a more credence or currency rather late of late one of the things that you teach 
along with that, and you mentioned hitting the sweet spot of that age being the right spot, is that student account accountability to one another, one's school, and one's community is just as important as being accountable to one's teacher. That struck me as an interesting thing to, to bring to kids because you get so engrossed in those years at being accountable to, I remember my fifth, sixth, seventh grade teachers. How does that get applied in the classroom? I think it's, I think the best way to speak to that is looking at a more sort of holistic approach to what does it mean to learn and become educated. So it's not just what happens in the classroom. We know a lot of kids get involved in extracurricular activities, whether it be internships and things like that, 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 are just as enriching as the curricular, quote unquote, curricular activities that happen in the classroom. But then also a lot of our work is informed by something called self-determination theory, which basically states that, that we all have an innate ability to want to be creative and thrive and express ourselves. And that the, there are three components that sort of address that. So one is autonomy. So to what degree do you feel that you're making choices? So are you making choices about the classes you choose or the teachers that you have or the assignments that you do? So that's autonomy. Second one is competency. So to what degree do you feel that you actually can fulfill the assignment? You know, that it's not too easy, but it's also not so hard that you just are frustrated and want to not do it. And then the third one is called relatedness, which means how supported do you feel by your peers, your teachers, your family? And if you think of those three things, it's almost like the legs of a tripod. If any one of them is weak, there's you, you're not on strong footing, you probably will topple over. And so that's where that whole relationship piece goes, that we sometimes just think about the, the test scores and don't necessarily give thought to to what degree does a young person feel supported by their teacher, by their peers, by, you know, in their home environment and all those different factors. Okay. I have one other before we turn it over to Emmy Lederman for the advice portion of the episode. You have a new program starting in fall 2021, Effective Communicators. What's the goal of that? Yeah, in this shift that we've made from having actually a, a JLI person in the classroom with a teacher to more of teachers being on their own and being supported and trained through online modules and talking with our advisors in the way that you and I are talking, we realized that we were trying to layer what we do over existing course structure, usually typically like one day a week. And it made it complicated because, first of all, particularly in high school, teachers have a certain set of benchmarks they're supposed to meet by a certain time, right? Like we need to do world civilization in the fall, and then we need to change and go into the revolution and you know, all that stuff. So we decided that we were better served to offer schools an entire course, like so that the teacher, it was also an issue of prep time, which is always very precious for teachers is, okay, I got my regular curriculum I'm doing, and now you're asking me to prep for this extra thing. We found that there's much more of an interest in a standalone course, which is what the Effective Communicators course is, and that if you really think about it, effective communication is at the heart of almost every other element of the school curriculum, although, but it's not really focused on extensively. So 
yeah, you might do a book report or yeah, you might stand up and show something and show a PowerPoint or something like that. But there's not a lot of really looking at what does it mean to, I'll give you an example, social media. Social media has changed everything and yet I don't know that we're helping young people set boundaries for themselves about how they will and will not allow themselves to be communicated with or talked about. There's a lot of cyberbullying and stuff that's going on, a lot of anxiety and depression amongst teenagers, and a lot of it is definitely tied to social media. So it's just helping students learn, first of all, what do we mean when we talk about communication? What is it? And then, and then how do we communicate effectively? And I would say, and I think you probably would agree, that if a young person can learn to be an effective communicator, that will enhance everything they may choose to do, no matter what career or you know job direction they choose to go in. You're, you're very much in my sweet spot of uh, <laughs> things that I do in my job, trying yeah. to communicate, in my case, sports statistics. Right. Uh, we turn things over to Emmy Lederman, uh, graduating senior at the College of New Jersey, for uh, the section of the podcast that we like to refer to as the advice portion. What is the most valuable lesson that you teach your college journalism students as a professor? I love that question. And it's easy for me to answer. I find that young people often have trouble owning their own talent. Okay. You are, what's the, what area or, or career aspirations do you have? Still figuring that one out. I'm looking into podcast, broad, broadcast, podcasting. So yeah, I, I'm still figuring that one out. Mm -hmm. I'll do a short exercise with you that I do with many of my first year students. Okay. So I'll ask you, first of all, are you someone who likes direction or are you someone who likes to be like given freedom to pursue projects? Do you like a lot of supervision or no? No. Don't like a lot of supervision. A lot of, that's so hard. I, I think it's important to strike a balance. Like okay. I like a little bit of structure, but when someone tells you to do something, it kind of makes you want to do a little more, a little okay. less. <laughs> okay. Do you see yourself working in a, a corporate environment or in a smaller, like maybe more boutique type of company? Probably a smaller boutique company. Okay. Are you a big city person or would you prefer to live in a smaller community? Big city. Okay. So I have a whole series of questions. How important is making money? Just want to be like comfortable, whatever okay. that ends up meaning. All right. But. So young people like yourself who don't necessarily know exactly what they want to do, they do know the answers to the questions you just asked that I just asked you. And so you can start, but, but if you don't ask yourself those questions first, then you might find yourself trying to fit into a position that really isn't aligned with who you are and your own values. So the answer to your question that you asked me is what do I try to teach students is first of all, do a self-assessment and find out what your own values are, what's important to you. And then instead of trying to contort and figure out what you think companies and internship organizations and things like that want, try to see if there's, if they're as much a fit for you as you may be for them. Yeah, I love that. I think you already answered this with that explanation, but is there anything about your teaching style that you think may distinguish you from other journalism professors? Yes, I'm very much a advocate for student-centered or student-oriented student 
learning. So this is something I, I learned from Esther, one of our board members and who we spoke about earlier in the teaching that they do at Palo Alto High. When you go and you observe, the teachers are in the back of the room and the students are up front leading. And first of all, it's just really empowering for students to have some choice in, in generating assignments for themselves. But secondly, it's easier on the professor or on the teacher. It's like, we don't know everything. <laughs> and I think sometimes things can be so top down until, or hierarchical until it can, can really, it can really give a false sense, especially as new technology um, is emerging and TikTok and all these other things. We're trying to figure out how they fit into the equation just as much as you are. But you probably um, could tell me all kinds of things about TikTok that I have no idea about, <laughs> but should. And are there any topics that you believe are underreported by the media today? And how can young journalists look to fill these gaps? This is, I'm going to try to do the, give you a short answer for this. So I think that one of the reasons there's, you hear a lot about distrust in journalism, especially in this past administration. There was a lot of an attack on journalism. And there's a couple of reasons I think that is. But one of them is that the media profession, journalism profession, has to own something that's been a little bit of a problem. Sometimes people will come to a small town to start their careers, but they're so focused on leaping to the next larger market that they're not really as invested in the community that they're in as they might otherwise be. They know that this is a two-year stint before they move to the bigger city and then they're two years there and move to the city after that. And I think people can pick up on that. I think people want the journalists who are covering them to really be invested in their, in their community. And that's where you find those stories that are underreported and are, that can make such a difference in, in terms of impact. Thank you. I appreciated how you turned the tables there. Uh, and I can tell you that those are questions that I've thought of uh, throughout my career as well. And it's interesting how the answers to some of them change over time. I know mm -hmm. that yeah. when I was younger, I felt differently from yeah. uh, how I felt now at age 46. Yeah, I wanted to be I wanted to be in Los Angeles in the heat of it all when I was in when I was 22. And now you couldn't pay me to live there. And, and that's not because I don't want to be one of these people that's always bashing Los Angeles, but the quality of life doesn't meet my current temperament. Like I, I like to throw a kayak on my rooftop and be on a, on a lake or something like that. Or Okay. Your program is 10 years old now. Are there, what is your greatest success story? Our greatest success story is looking into the eyes of students like Caden and Avery, who, who really exemplify just our, uh, our wildest dreams of what this kind of education can do for young people. I always thought I was a pretty okay writer, but now that we're in journalism and we write a lot and we ask deep questions all the time and we always have it deep. We're not just like simple. I feel my writing has had more depth to it. That was like the first year I really stepped up, especially in writing, because I always like kind of goofed around and would write at home, but I never really took it seriously until then. And then it got me really excited for the future. It really made me think that there could be a future for writing for me and made me really, really excited about it. To see them be more confident, to see them articulate their perspectives and and just with such a sense of just just professionalism is exciting to see and so it has us 
be very committed to wanting to spread the work that we do all over the country and beyond that. So that was my next question. How does a program like this gain national footing? We are working on a number of initiatives, some of which I can't talk about completely right now, but we are doing some, we're working on some projects that will allow a self-directed way to do JLI where a kid could come home and, and sit down in front of a laptop or go to an after-school program and say, hey, I want to explore this topic and could um, click something and would, they'd have an opportunity to do that. Uh, no matter where they were, no matter what time of day it was, so it wouldn't be confined to uh, classroom instruction. All right. And then our last question, is there a journalism organization or a person that you would like to salute? I think it would have to be the Student Press Law Center because of the advocacy work they do on behalf of uh, protecting First Amendment rights for journalists, student journalists. They're a fantastic organization, and I know not, not many people necessarily know about their work, but they're they're on the they're on the front lines of supporting freedom of speech. I appreciate you plugging a former guest, Hadar Harris, <laughs> joined us uh, a couple of months ago. Dr. Madison, thank you for taking the time to join us. Sure. Best of luck with your program. I always thought I was a pretty okay writer. But now that we're in journalism and we write a lot and we ask deep questions all the time, I feel my writing has had more depth to it. Usually if I had to write something in class, I'd maybe write a paragraph. And now I'm writing like five to six paragraphs on my assignment. The Journalistic Learning Initiative's objective is to encourage critical thinking and uh, informed thinking. We started with day one of asking deeper questions, and I found that 11-year-olds are really able to ask those curious questions and to think deeply. I think journalism class has actually taught me how to work with people better. I'm learning that in a group, you need to think of an idea together. Sometimes it's challenging. You know, if anybody thinks it's easy, then they should just come to this class and like experience it for themselves. And once again, we open the reporter's notebook with Emil Lederman, College of New Jersey, class of 2021, a few weeks from graduating. Your impressions of Ed Madison. Uh, what was your biggest takeaway from his, I guess, conversation and then his interrogation of you? Yeah, so you could tell that he really lit up when he was able to play teacher and, and ask me all these questions. And it was really re refreshing when I got his advice that he turned it back on me and said, what do you want opposed to how are you fitting the mold to make yourself available for a job that may not be best suited for you? So I really appreciated that from my section. But also as an educator, he seems to really understand what how to reach students at a young age and the way that journalism bridges the gap between students and those who may not fit into this traditional education system. I think that if I was a kid in middle school, I would have loved this program. And everything he said really made me want to get involved in the program. And it makes a lot of sense psychologically why kids would, would love journalism from a young age because they're getting this extrinsic motivation from seeing that their published work is, is being read by people. And also if they're just doing work that aligns with things that they already love, then that's bound to, to be successful as well. 
So one of the really cool things that I took from it was the idea, as you said, you could sum it up in four words. Journalism is for everyone. And that seems to be the theme of how he's teaching. What impressed you most about him? I think that he was really humble and he's accomplished so much and he was honest about everything that he's done, but not in a flashy way. And it seems like at the end of the day, he really just cares a lot about getting everyone to be on the same page of how powerful journalism is. He didn't lose sight of that. I think his advice about being in a community, not for your own professional development, but because you actually care about reporting. He was really honest and and candid about that. And I just think he was a no bullshit kind of guy. He just gave it to us straight. And he's had so much experience. And I, I really trust the advice that he gave. Emmy Lederman, thank you. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who ran the journalism program at Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. I came from a a very old-fashioned Italian family that didn't really understand why girls would want to go to college. So... Um, I went to college for about a year and a half. I didn't have much support and I decided to quit. After hearing the news that Nancy Colasurdo, a now freelance journalist, author, and life coach, decided to discontinue her studies at the college, Cole set up an interview for her at the Trentonian, where she began her career by covering high school sports at night. She thanks Cole for getting her back in school and helping her solidify her path as a sports journalist. I quit the full-time job, went back to school, and kept the newspaper job. So he change the trajectory of my career. Being in class with him also, you know, could be cringy in in a really good way because, you know, he had the overhead projector. Everybody knows about the overhead projector. So he'd he'd come wheeling in with that and you knew there was a chance your work was going to be put on the projector. Um, He would fold the corner so you wouldn't see the name, but still, um, if your your work was put up there, you could only pray it was for a good reason <laughs> and not to be shown how not to do something. I was also asked to be a judge on a journalism contest and I showed up and guess who was sitting at the table? Dr. Cole, um, who I could never call Bob by the way, ever. How honored I was to be sitting next to my mentor judging journalism. But you know, he was very clear that I belonged there I'm Emmy Lederman. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.